Praise the Lord. Jessica, do a good job. Christian always likes it when she does it, so he doesn't have to. So that's uh, uh, fantastic. Praise the Lord. Uh, well, last week I shared just a little bit about some of the real challenges, some of the real problems encountered by the very first followers of Jesus. And one of the things that really hit me uh, in, in working on that and sharing that message was the realization that those very early Christians followed the Holy Spirit, demonstrated the kingdom of God had a gigantic impact on the people around them. And they did all of that while walking through the very same sorts of trials and hardships and challenges that you and I face every day. They had sick children. They had aging parents. They had health concerns. They had financial stresses. They still had to go to work. They still had to clean the house. They still had to pay the bills. And they did all of that while also sharing Jesus with the people around them and reaching out to and ministering to sick, hurting, broken people. And I believe the only reason they were able to do that is because serving God and helping people wasn't just some stuff they did. It became who they were. When they became followers of Jesus, they completely redefined and reinterpreted their lives in light of Jesus and the gospel and the mission of God. They viewed themselves as missionaries, kingdom people, intentionally and strategically sown by God into their jobs, into their families, into their schools and their neighborhoods to advance the purposes of Jesus. And I want to make sure you understand you are a full-time missionary according to the purpose and the plan of God, whether you've recognized that yet or not. Every trip you take to Walmart, whether or not you recognize it, is a short-term mission trip to Walmart. According to the plan and intention of God, everywhere you go, you're meant to go as a representative of Jesus and the gospel. I believe with all my heart, the kind of stuff you see in Acts can happen today in and around you and me if we will listen to and follow the Holy Spirit out there and if we will live our lives for God and the glory of God. And just in case you've been tempted these last several weeks to begin to think that the kind of outsized impact you find in the book of Acts is just something for apostles, well, along comes Acts chapter 6. Would you stand with me, please, in honor of the Word of God? This morning, just to kind of get us focused and moving, we're going to read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. I'll read the plain text. If you join me in reading the highlighted portions, that way we'll walk through the passage together. Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. This is what the Bible says. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, 
a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Praise the Lord, this is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Well, it's worth a remind you that Acts chapter 6 is still very, very early on in the development of the church. And the gist of the first part of the chapter, at least, it has to do with the ongoing development of a church structure, and more importantly for our purposes this morning, the commitment to see all of God's people actively and meaningfully engaged in the work of the ministry. The Bible says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. In other words, what we're about to look at in Acts chapter 6 all started with an internal conflict in the church. Now you need to understand that this time in the history of Christianity, all the followers of Jesus had come to faith in Jesus as Jews. In fact, they still considered themselves Jews. The word Christian didn't even exist yet. But there were in the church at the time two basic groups of Messianic Jewish Christians. Those who'd come primarily from a Hebrew Jewish background and those who'd come primarily from a Hellenistic or a Greek Jewish background. The Hebrew believers were probably more numerous. They were in Jerusalem at the time. And the Hebrew believers were fundamentally from Judea and they were more connected to and more comfortable with historic Jewish culture. The Greek or Hellenistic believers, on the other hand, were likely from the diaspora, from other parts around the Roman Empire, and they were more comfortable and connected to Greek culture. Today you might liken it to a comparison between old school and new school, traditionalists and innovators, with the Hebrew believers likely seeing themselves as the guardians of their rich history and traditions. And the Greek believers likely viewing themselves as the fresh new faces on the scene. Those who were more up to date and in in touch with the modern world. In other words, unlike the Hebrew believers, the Greek or Hellenistic believers were totally into Instagram and Snapchat. But the point is, there was a problem. Last week I shared a message with you I called Trouble in Paradise. And the truth is, by Acts chapter 5, The guild is forever off the lily as far as the church is concerned. The cat's out of the bag. The church is not perfect. And that really bears repeating this morning for at least two groups of people. First, for the hopeless romantics among us who imagine first century Christianity to be some sort of unspoiled, trouble-free utopia. For the Holy Spirit led in everything and everybody listened to him all the time and all was always for the best in that best of all possible worlds. But if you imagine it was like that for them, you will pine for it to be like that for you. And the truth is it has never been like that, at least not since the time of the fall. It wasn't even like that when Jesus personally led the church 
They frequently didn't understand his teachings. They argued about who was going to be the greatest. And Judas Iscariot, one of the hand-picked 12 leaders of the church, regularly stole from the treasury and eventually betrayed the Lord. The first century church wasn't perfect. The church down the street isn't perfect. And that TV preacher you like so much isn't perfect either. So first, the hopeless romantics need to recognize the troubles in the early church. But second, so do the naysayers. Because listen very carefully. Saying that the church is no utopia is nothing at all like saying the church is a sham or a waste or an unimportant, unnecessary, uh, optional thing. Yes, church people are broken, but they're still what you've got. And more importantly than that, they're still what God insists on working through. You can slam the church and organize religion all day long, but Jesus will not join you. The church is Jesus' baby. And I don't think it's a very good idea to talk smack about Jesus' baby. Jesus never expected that his church was going to be perfect this side of heaven. So frankly, to point out that the church isn't perfect is kind of silly and meaningless. So we open Acts chapter 6 with one group of people in the church complaining about a different group of people in the church, and I'm sure you've never experienced that. But they're doing it, they're complaining about their food distribution process. And before we dig into the problem and the solution to the problem, I do not want you to miss the fact that they had a food distribution process. The first century was a tough time to be poor. There was absolutely no social safety net. But Christians took incredibly seriously this whole issue of caring for one another. And they worked to do something about it. And don't miss the reality that the presence of a food distribution process means that the very earliest Christian church, there was within the very earliest Christian church, there was structure and order and organization. So they had a plan and a process to take care of widows. But as is always the case, it wasn't a perfect plan or process. And so as it turned out, at least from time to time, the Greek widows seemed to be getting the short end of the stick, which led to all kinds of opportunity for misunderstanding and hurt and offense. After all, given the basic realities of sociology and the way Luke phrases the entire issue, chances are pretty good that before this even happened, the Greek Christians and the Hebrew Christians were already kind of looking at each other a little bit suspiciously. And don't you know, the devil delights in taking that sort of thing and stirring trouble and strife and discord in the church. There's no indication whatsoever from the text or any other place that the Greek widows were being overlooked on purpose. In all likelihood, it was an innocent matter of insufficient administration or inattention to detail. And honestly, be real, with a group that size, it's virtually a given that from time to time, somebody's going to get missed. Nevertheless, the New International Version says the Greek believers complained against the Hebrew believers. Literally, in Greek, it says there was a gagumos. 
There was a murmuring and a grumbling, one group with another. And that's where the trouble really begins. Then the enemy starts to worm his way in. In an effort to turn an unintentional failing into a major source of hurt and conflict. Again, the truth is, as far as I can tell from the text, the Greek widows really were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. That was not a good thing. That was a real problem. That needed to be addressed. But the truth also is, the church was out there trying to provide food for their widows. In other words, the Hebrews were right in their heart intention. And the Greeks were right with the cold hard facts. And so with the Greeks absolutely justified in saying, you're shortchanging our widows. And and with the Hebrews absolutely justified in responding, how dare you suggest we do that on purpose? All the elements were in place for both sides to be offended. For both sides to feel slighted. And for both of them to be right. I've seen it happen over and over again with Christian people. You make a list of volunteers to thank them for something they did, and the one person who accidentally gets off, left off the list becomes hurt and angry and leaves the church. Or you organize some event to solve some problem, to, to take care of some issue, to help somebody, and somewhere along the way, something or someone gets left out. And the next thing you know, somebody's treating a genuinely unfortunate mistake as if it were a purposeful slap in the face. The truth is, when you try to do things to bless people, you will occasionally do them poorly. You will occasionally mess them up. And when that happens, unfortunately, sometimes people, rather than acknowledging the effort and extending grace, will punish you for the failing. As the people of God, listen to me, we must do better. Whenever an offense occurs, listen, whenever an offense occurs, the moment an offense occurs, you instantly have the privilege and the responsibility to decide how you will interpret it. You have some idea of what happened, and you must now make a decision why you think it happened. And I warn you, always to be careful in assigning motives to other people. Will you interpret the error as a cruel, bitter, unjust slight? Or will you interpret it as an unfortunate but understandable mistake? Will you interpret it as proof they never liked you in the first place? Or as a reminder that everybody's apt to make mistakes and frankly we should all probably triple check our work? In a discipleship culture, it is important to address and admit and deal with failings and faults and mistakes and to suggest ways of fixing them going forward. Disciples are always learning and growing and we must be open to correction. On the other hand, when offering that correction, we need to do it with grace, with gratitude for the effort and with a genuine, lovingly redemptive intent. And let me just say, if you're the one who's occasionally overlooked, please resist the urge to take up an offense. Resist the urge to call it personal. Because the truth is, to be easily offended or to be often offended is a sign of immaturity and brokenness. So the Greek widows were getting overlooked in the food distribution process and the Greek believers began grumbling and murmuring with their Hebrew brothers. And the whole situation was ripe for a good old-fashioned church split. 
But thankfully, cooler heads prevailed. The Bible says the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. What you see here, as I mentioned earlier, is, a, is the continuing development of a structure and an order within this growing Christian community. And it is an early commitment to spread the work of the ministry around the people of God. The doctrine of the priesthood of all believers is the New Testament conviction that every bona fide follower of Jesus is called and equipped and sent by God to do the missionary work of the kingdom in the world, the work of the kingdom wherever they are. Say, I am called. I am equipped. I have been sent. Wow, that was not a lot of conviction in that. I believe it if you don't. In the early church, they believed, and in this church, we believe as well. If you're a born-again follower of Christ, you're supposed to be active in the ministry. Caring for the people of God in here, demonstrating the kingdom of God out there. The Bible also teaches that if you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit has gifted you uniquely for service in God's kingdom. And so the apostles understood the time had come to take part of the work they had been doing and spread it around to other Christians. But not just any other Christians. Because the people who would oversee the work of food distribution needed to be gifted by the Holy Spirit to oversee the work of food distribution. And so the leaders looked to assign these roles specifically to believers known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. The church is a team. Everybody matters and everybody has a role. But the roles are not all the same. And within the framework of the church, we're not just looking for warm bodies and volunteers. We trust the Spirit of God, and so we are looking for the people the Holy Spirit has uniquely gifted for the tasks and responsibilities at hand. In Acts chapter 6, when the apostles set about creating a whole new role within the church, they first looked for people who were known, people who had already been living and laboring faithfully among them who had been serving faithfully among them, who had demonstrated integrity and faithfulness in the kingdom of God. They looked for people who were full of the Spirit, people who trusted in the Holy Spirit and listened for the Holy Spirit and believed in the anointing and the grace and the working of the Holy Spirit. And they looked for people who were full of wisdom, who knew how to make decisions well, who were smart enough to know they weren't smart enough. And so they trusted in and followed the word of God, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so they concluded this food distribution process was an important part of their community ministry. And they recognized it had grown to the point where it needed more attention than the apostles had been giving it. And let me just say, I am confident, 100% confident, though it is not in the text, I am 100% confident someone suggested the apostles needed to work harder and pay more attention to the food ministry. However, thanks be to God, they had the wisdom to say any more attention given to that ministry on their part would take them away from their primary calling. 
So they decided to bring more people, more meaningfully, into the work of the ministry. God wants all his children serving meaningfully in the work of the kingdom of God. In Acts chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, you primarily see the apostles out there doing the stuff. In Acts chapters 6, 7, and 8, now you primarily see these guys doing it. Philip and Stephen get way more attention than Peter and John in those chapters. By Acts chapter 9, God picks a guy named Ananias. We don't even know who he was. And sends him to lay hands on and give direction to Saul of Tarsus. And by the time that man writes 1 Corinthians, we find the Bible telling every believer, all of everyone in the church, eagerly desire spiritual gifts and believe that the Spirit of God is going to use you in the work of the ministry in the world. There is a progression of spreading it around, taking the work of the ministry and giving it to the gifted, anointed people of God that everyone might be involved in the work of the kingdom. One last thought as I prepare to close. Once the people were chosen and approved, the Bible says they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. <clears throat> the laying on of hands to consecrate and ordain and release into ministry is a biblical practice dating way back all the way to the establishment of the priesthood and the Levites in the Old Testament. And clearly it was a practice carried on by the very first followers of Jesus. The writer of the book of Hebrews says the laying on of hands is foundational. It is a foundational teaching for the people of God. And the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. I'm going to invite the elders to go ahead and come forward and come here down to the front, if you would, please, at this time. And I want to tell you that I believe the practice of the laying on of hands, not only, I don't believe it, it's clearly a biblical practice, and I fear we've tended to neglect it. We need to take seriously the power and the presence and the working of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. To remember that God has called and gifted each of us to go out and do the work of the kingdom in the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit and to expect the Spirit of God to move. And so as I close this morning, I want to close first of all by saying, do not neglect your gift. If you are a follower of Jesus, you've been called and equipped and sent by God. You've been uniquely gifted by the Spirit of God to do the work of the kingdom of God. Do not neglect your gift. And I want to do this, to acknowledge that gift to honor that gift, to remind you that you are gifted and anointed by the Spirit of God. I want to invite every believer in this room, if you want to, to come forward in just a minute and let the elders lay hands on you. And, and I believe, I believe the Spirit of God will be present in that act to stir up in you and release you afresh into the work of the kingdom of God. And if you're already doing it, I mean, you're out there, I mean, you're just doing it and do it, and you're doing the work, then they will, I believe they'll pray for a fresh, new, increased anointing and a fresh, new, increased fruitfulness. But we're going to sing. And if you're here as a follower of Jesus and you're willing to let an elder lay hands on you simply to speak the word of God and to call you for the call those gifts forth and to release you into the work of the kingdom, I'm going to encourage you to come on up and don't waste 
any time doing it. And we're going to take a few minutes and do this.